0: or if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Well, we've been going through discipleship here and there. Look at it for a while. Take a break, look at it for a while again. The more I think of the topic, the more I think how needful it is for me, for us, for the body of Christ to really get clarity on discipleship. And I think there's a a lot of things the church suffers because they don't have a good grasp of it. Um, just, just what kind of, a, I've just seen little things that, and it's not necessarily because of only a misconception of discipleship, but really a misconception of the body of Christ. And it's this odd version of discipleship that has replaced the sense of the body of Christ in the church. It's uh, very interesting. Anyway, we'll be talking about that in days to come. We're working from a definition of discipleship that it fundamentally means to personally follow Jesus, who he is, for who he is according to his word with the Holy Spirit in the context of a body of believers. We've tried to look at the significance, sort of an introductory little guided tour of the significance, and discipleship is well, everything's at stake. If you miss discipleship, you miss Christianity, you miss heaven. It's just a real thing. And if everything's at stake with discipleship, then we should really be clear on it. It's not something we should be vague or indiscriminate about or just kind of come see, come saw, you know, whatever you want to say about it. We should really be clear about it. We've been looking at the context of discipleship and some of them say, well, are we going to get to discipleship in Acts 2? Yeah, I'm going to smell some roses along the way because number one, I can't resist. And also, number two, I made a statement some weeks ago, and someone asked me about it, and they should have. It was a great question. That eschatology is core to Christianity. And what I'm trying to demonstrate is why I said that. When we think of eschatology, we generally think of, quote, in times, of the details, perhaps, of the second coming of Christ, eschatology in the world of theology <coughs> in systematic theology that is when you look at the theology of the Bible in its categories the doctrine of God the doctrine of Christ the doctrine of man of sin um, the Holy Spirit those things when you get to the doctrine of last things that's usually seen and understood as eschatology and you can say yes it's eschatology the word eschatology may be unfamiliar to some of you it's <coughs> used to be really unfamiliar um but it should be a familiar term. It comes from two Greek words, eschatos, which means last. And ol, we, we call it ology, but logos, which is basically thought or idea, concept. And so it's the ideas about and perhaps even the study of last things. And because the church has focused primarily on last things as being, well, when you die, that's a last thing. That's a personal eschatology issue at least for this life, for this world. The coming of Jesus certainly brings some last things we might talk about. New heavens and new earth certainly brings last things. But because they've been isolated to this really second coming futuristic concept, the church has missed, probably for a long time, has missed the real substance of of New Testament eschatology. How we should really think about it, how we should really appreciate it, how it should seep into the bones of our soul. And so I've, I would say the eschatology not in terms of the details of the second coming, we could be wrong about those details, Jesus is still going to come. Um and uh, we're still going to make it even though we may be right or wrong on those details. But in terms of the age, the era in which we are, the new covenant, the age of the reign of Messiah, the reign of grace, we need to understand it because everywhere throughout the New Testament we are presented with it. It's just the church hasn't realized for a long time because there hasn't been a lot of popular teaching on it. People have been too worried about perhaps, oh, well, you're going to start a, an argument, and you probably will. So this morning as we continue with the eschatology of Joel that is affirmed and presented by Peter in the first point of the first message ever preached since the resurrection of Christ, we might want to take account of it. We might want to see if the apostles emphasize it, particularly on a day when the Holy Spirit is being poured out and And the flames of fire may still be on people as Peter is starting his message and pointing to it and saying, these are the last days. These inaugurate the last days because that's what Joel said. Prophet Joel. We should probably pay attention to it. We should probably say, Lord, you know, I need to have my mind and my heart aligned with your word. And I don't need to worry about all the theological constructs floating around out there. I just need to know, Lord Jesus, what your word says. And I found in my life when I finally went, okay, theological constructs have their value. Some are better than others. Some are more correct than others. But in the end, that's not my trust. Theological constructs, in my mind, are like scaffolding when you're building a building you need that scaffolding when you're starting to put the bricks up and getting the second story on but once your building's pretty much built you, you don't keep the scaffolding around You glory in the building and so as our understanding of scripture is, <clears throat> is renewed and uh, built up by people who have gone before us and laying foundations and, and we should appreciate that we also need to realize that it's not the word of God As I always remind everybody, remind myself, today's theology is tomorrow's historical theology. And historical theology is just a study of what the church has believed. It's not biblical theology. So we're in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit has come. Pentecost has happened. People respond to it. All are amazed. Some mock. The big question is, what's going on here? This very evident, real, and indisputable event of the Holy Spirit pouring out and manifesting in people's lives right before them, speaking in the tongues of all nations, the great works of God. What is this about? So Peter says, Okay, I'm going to tell you what's it about. He takes the occasion. I'm sure he's filled with the Holy Spirit when he says this. Some of you are saying, you know, it's not people being drunk. This isn't some phenomenon that you can explain by natural causes. This is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. And we started to focus on, well, there's one, older translations will say, not this is what, but this is that, which was spoken through the prophet Joel. And we looked at this as that, and Peter, in the first message Literally, the first statement, his opening words of his opening message, is that you have to understand how to interpret the Old Testament. You need to understand that the Old Testament is an era of things, and what you're seeing right now in this Holy Spirit coming down, what you saw in Jesus coming and dying and rising and going into heaven. Remember, the apostles saw him go into heaven. They saw him die on a cross. This is all fulfillment. This is all. This is that which was spoken by many prophets in the Old Testament. In this particular case, this Holy Spirit is what was. That was spoken by Joel. This is that. And while we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we read it chronologically forward, but we must interpret it backward. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is the truest interpretation of the Old Testament. And hence, the New Testament interprets the Old in every way, at every level. Some take a different tack. Some very overtly take that tack, dispensationalism, which again, many of you have probably taught growing up, didn't know what it was probably, but dispensationalists will tell you in their literature, they will tell you, we start with the Old Testament and interpret the Bible that way. They'll tell you that. Others may not tell you that overtly, but they do the same thing. When you're dealing with the space of trying to interpret the Bible end to end, which is a big space, but it's also a vital space, it's the space Peter opens up with in his first message. All the ologies, all the isms that are out there tend to, though they, though they want to or not, they many won't acknowledge it, But the tendency is is to go into the Old Testament, get some ideas cranking, get some theological constructs going, and then roll through the Old Testament into the New. And that's just wrong. That is not how you interpret the Bible. We have to understand that the Bible has eras. We talked a little bit about this last week, last time. An era is a period of history in which particular features or characteristics hold true, hold sway. And when we look at the eras of the Bible, well, there's the big ones. There's the Old Testament era, and what characterizes it is promise and prophecy and type and shadow, and very much its message is brought to us in symbol and imagery. It's the Old Testament. It's an era. It's a period of time. Galatians, by the way, the entire book of Galatians, in particular chapters 3 and 4, Paul is giving you the eras. He's telling you what structures the history of redemption. Everyone seems to bypass it. I don't know why. The New Testament era, the era in which Jesus has come, is an era in which redemption is accomplished. Not promised, but now accomplished. Not prophesied, but now fulfilled. Not in type and shadow, but now in reality now in substance, now in manifestation. This is the era. These are terms right out of the New Testament, by the way. These are the terms that that God in the New Testament, that Jesus and the apostles used to describe the history of redemption and how to understand it. And that's the era we're all looking for. That era is the great hope of every saint, the great hope of the body of Christ, the hope of all creation that final era when all things are made new. Those are the big eras in the history of redemption. Now Peter told us that in the last days, here's his first message. This is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Now I'm going to explain that to you. He quotes Joel, in the last days it shall be the last days. When we think of last days, again, we need to tend to talk about, think about, okay, I'm in the year 2023, and the last days, gosh, they're still down the road for me, right? That's Last days. That's end times. And again, that's just not the way the, the New Testament looks at last days. There is a last day, so we're not saying there's not a last day. But the New Testament doesn't look at it that way. And and the New Testament says we're fulfilling the prophet Joel. And when did Joel live? He lived in anywhere from eight hundred to five hundred BC, depending on which commentator you talk to and listen to and read. Joel was at least 500 years before Christ. And when he, God speaks through him and talks about last days, it's last days with reference to Joel, not with reference to us. There's our last days. God declares, this is God's word, that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And as we started looking at last week, that Joel basically says that the last days started when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's Bible. That's not all millennial theology. That's not Steve Cowden's pet doctrine. That's Joel, affirmed by Peter. The last days begin when God pours his spirit out on all flesh. Last week I had the uh, overly optimistic thought that I was going to (laughs) finish last days, but uh, that didn't happen, so we're going to continue this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne, and Lord, your thoughts are not our thoughts in so many ways and so many things, and you have given us your spirit and you have given us your word so that our thoughts can be molded and shaped to conform to yours, so, Lord, we just ask you to do that this morning. For some of us, this is radical theology. For others, this is old hat. But Lord, whether it's radical, reach into our minds and hearts and give us the confidence that we can trust your word and we can put our hand in the hand of Scripture and be led and, and be happy for it. Lord, I've always found that uh, your word is the simplest explanation of things. And Lord, if it's old hat, just pray you'd read Revive our souls in it. That all of us this morning would see that these are the last days in which you have raised your Son from the dead and made him to sit at your right hand and given all authority in heaven and earth to him. And that he rules the nations with a rod of iron. And it's in that confidence and in that foundation of the reign of your Christ. That we go and we proclaim the gospels to the nations, that we live our lives, that we have our hope and our confidence. These things are real. Or they're just not theological structures. Lord, I myself sometimes when I, I think, okay, I'm going to explain God, I feel like, how can someone explain God? I feel how do you even do that? You explain yourself. But Lord, you have given us propositions in the scripture that we can use, we're supposed to use. And so we do it. And just pray that these propositions this morning of a prophecy 500 years before Jesus, 2,500 years away from us, affirmed by your apostle Peter, whom you spent 40 days with explaining the Old Testament to, that we can trust Joel and we can trust Peter. Conform our minds and hearts to it, but Lord, show us the glory of it. We're like Moses. Lord, we, we don't want to be theologians. We want to see your glory. We want to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We want to be conformed to your image in every way and thing that we can. Lord, we want to be real human beings, not, not religious. We want to serve you, the living God. So Lord, this morning, just pray you would make your word to be clear in our minds and hearts and yet, Lord, to fill our minds and hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we are. Here we are in the first sermon, the first point of the first sermon, eschatology. Who would have thought? huh? And we have to be clear and confident when Joel says, in the last days I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, that is God himself speaking personally, that God is behind his word and God is giving us clarity and God is giving us the structure of how he's going to bring things to pass. God declares it. God brings it to pass. And so this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, this inaugurates the age of the Spirit. Some of us, I know I did for a long time, what's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New? Usually we say Old Testament and the New, but the Old Testament's bigger than the Old Covenant. But we tend to think, well, what's the difference between the law and the gospel? These are big questions if you haven't sorted them through, and they can take a long time to sort through because there's probably some rough edges that you still end up with trying to think about And the way you have to think about it is this. The Old Testament never promised eternal life and it never gave the Holy Spirit, did it? Could the law of Moses justify you? And so it's not law versus grace as if, well, you know, I don't have to keep the law anymore. The righteousness of God is not grounded ultimately in law. It's grounded in the image of God. If you're in the image of God, you have obligation to be like God in everything in the created world in which he's placed you. All of your thoughts... All of your actions, all of your attitudes, all of your dealings, all of your relationships should be an expression of the image of God. Righteousness has an ultimate foundation. Who is God? To be like God. A number of places in the Old Testament and in the New, God's Word said you shall be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. That's the ultimate foundation of holiness. Now, God writes some things out for us because, well, Genesis 3, the whole human race fell, and we're sinners, and, and we need clarity. Some things are kind of obvious. You shouldn't kill or you couldn't steal until you get, well, to the 21st century. And, well, it used to be obvious that there's actual men and women, and there's differences between them. Well, that's been erased. So if someone wonders, well, why does God have to give commandments for things that are obvious? Well, here's Why? Because we're sinners, because we're dark, because there's a world of demonic forces out there, a world of true, real darkness that is trying to distort God in every way he can. And so the word of God is vital, and when God says, don't steal, he means it. When he says, love your neighbors yourself, he means it. I used to work with some Hasidic Jews for nine months. Great experience. I just loved it. I love recounting it. Every time I tell it, probably stories get a little bit bigger, but whatever. It was just an awesome experience, Hasidic Jews. And I would start talking to them about Isaiah and how it points to Jesus. And they'd get nervous and go tell the boss. And the boss would come over and say, don't you talk to them. <laughs> so I'd wait a few days, and I'd start talking again. And it was quite interesting. But they told me they had 600 and some laws that they had to keep, many of them ceremonial. Well, not to be outdone, the New Testament, according to one person's count, has over a thousand imperatives. So if you think that in the New Testament, New Covenant, you're going to get out of keeping commandments, then think again. Jesus said you shouldn't commit adultery. And then he turns around and he says, but it's more important than that. The demands of God are more significant than that. You don't even look. Jesus says that you've been told you shouldn't kill, but it's more significant than that. It's deeper than that. It's more real than that. You shouldn't hate your brother. If you hate your brother, you're committing murder. The demands of the new covenant are finer and richer and deeper and fuller. And far more expressive than anything you will ever find in the Old Covenant. Anyone who says New Covenant theology is antinomian doesn't have the first clue of what New Covenant theology presents. Here we are in the last days. And the difference between law and grace is not commandment, not imperative. The difference is that the old covenant cannot accomplish redemption. It cannot justify you. Romans 3 through 5, only Jesus can. It cannot sanctify you. Romans 6 through 8, only the Holy Spirit can. And so the last days are characterized as an era in which The Holy Spirit now belongs to all believers. You are justified by the blood of the Son of God. Not reminders of bulls and goats having to do year by year to testify to you, not that you've been forgiven, but that you can't be the blood of bulls and goats, can't forgive you. Only the blood of God, the Son of God can. That's the point of the last days. That's how big the last days are. That's why we should think in these terms. We are in the age and the era of the Holy Spirit. We are in the age and the era of the reign of Christ, which we will see at the end of Peter's message. I haven't put a little crown in there yet because, well, we're going to get to it. We're starting where Peter starts. And I it, said, it's the reign of grace. There was no grace under the old covenant in the sense the law could not help you out. It could only condemn you. If you go to a policeman and say, hey, can you get me out of this fix? You know, I just stole some money. He said, I can't help you. You need a lawyer, buddy, not me. I'm just taking you to jail because that's all I can do. That's all I'm commissioned to do. Law can't help you. You need a lawyer. You need an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And that's what characterizes the last days. They're big, they're full, they're rich. They encompass truly everything we glory in. And so the last days have a beginning. We must have that in our mind. There's this beginning of the last days. It's a definitive beginning. Redemption has been accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. Redemption has been certified by his ascension and coronation. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, which Peter will say at the end of his message, he being by the right hand of God exalted, has poured forth which you now see and hear. This Holy Spirit didn't come out of nowhere. You having the Holy Spirit is the guarantee and certification and testimony from God himself that Jesus the Son is at his right hand in fulfillment of Psalm 110. The age of grace has begun. The age of the Holy Spirit has begun. The final era of the history of redemption has begun. My brothers and sisters, you're in it. You're in it. So I said before, and I'll say it again, you know, if you go around depressed, and I do, half the time I'm depressed, my worst days are Monday, I'm like, ah, I should have said this and didn't say that, and why did I say this? That was so stupid. I know I'm going to get five questions from it, and I should. When I don't, I'm happy, but I'm like, are you guys listening? Satan just jumps all over me on Mondays, not Saturdays. Saturdays are usually okay, I'm so tired I don't notice anything. But Mondays, they're the pits. Spiritual warfare is what we're engaged in in these last days, and you have to fight. When I was a young Christian, I got saved out of what's best described as witchcraft. It was a mix of a bunch of things, New Age, Spiritism, Moody Blues, and... Counterculture and just a bunch of stuff. It ended up, you just could call it witchcraft. It wasn't sacrificing, it wasn't full blown witchcraft, but it was, it was bad enough. It was just as bad as could be. And when I got saved, I was still being harassed by demons. Demons would come in my room and choke me. I've been through warfare. I know what it is to lay in my bed with covers over me thinking they might ward off some of the demons. They don't, by the way. Tell you that. Pray into God that one of them wouldn't reach out and touch me. One day God said, okay, Steve, you need to go up into the attic. The attic was a prayer room. I lived in this house, and it was like the house of the seven gables with lurch in it. I mean, it was the Adams family house for sure. And they had this prayer room up in the top. I'm in my bed, and sure enough, the demons are coming marching around my bed. It's not that you see them visibly, you just know you're there. It's called discernment, discerning of spirits. There's a spiritual gift for that. And I'm shaking in my bed with the covers over me, and God is saying, Do you want to be done with this? And I'm like, Yes. And God just said, Get up and go into the attic. I'm like, No, they're all up there. That's their nest. So finally after about an hour back and forth with the Holy Spirit of God, threw the covers back, ran into the to the room that goes that's just before you go the door that goes up to the attic, and I prayed there. And God said, No, not good enough. Not good enough. So I I tried to make it good enough for about an hour, that didn't work, and so I finally went up in the attic. And sure enough, every creepy demon of Melbourne, Florida seemed to be in that room telling me I wasn't born of God, telling me I was going to fail, telling me they were going to just crush me any moment now. And God had given me some dreams before that. Yes, dreams. God gives Christians dreams and visions. I had them. And one of those visions brought me to a clear recognition. Because I was in crazy Pentecostalism, by the way, and so I didn't know what was going on, and so that's how God had to talk to me a clear vision that I was a child of God and that I had the right not the power you know Satan can crush every one of us like that if you're talking about power if you're talking about authority you're in a different realm that I had the authority the right to be a child of God and God brought that vision he had given me back to my mind and so I walked really slow walk talk about slow walking slow walked up to the attic and there I am and all these demons around me didn't, wouldn't even want to open my eyes because I felt like I was going to see one and I thought about that vision and I just thought you know I'm just going to start singing about Jesus Christ and I did and as I started singing those demons just started follow, filing out Done. Gone. I learned that day that I don't have the power to overcome Satan or the prince of darkness, the forces of darkness, but I have the authority given to me by God himself. But I have to use that authority. I have to stand on that authority I have to maintain that authority in my life, and I have to declare to principalities and powers that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you dominions of darkness, say what you will, accuse what you will to my mind, whatever. I am bought with the blood of the Lamb. And that is where I stand. And you cannot do a thing about it. some of you here are going through hard things in your mind and your heart and your soul. You're going through spiritual warfare like no other. Just know number 1 you're in good company. Read up on John Bunyan. Read about the warfare he went through. <laughs> Nothing compared to what I just described. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress because he lived that warfare in his life for decades. When you read his messages, you read here is a man who has knows what it is to deal with sin, to deal with the powers of darkness, to know what it is to face the accusation of the devil day and night in his mind. You're in good company. I may not be good company, but I think John Bunyan is. John Bunyan wrote a book. Very, a lot of people don't realize he wrote. It's called The Holy War. It's as good, or if you're going through spiritual warfare, it's better than Pilgrim's Progress. It's another allegory about the warfare with the Prince of Darkness, Apollyon. So if you're going through those things, you need to be reminded that you're in the last days. You're in the last days where Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, where he has given you his Holy Spirit and you have the right, the authority to be a child of God. And you have to stand there. And you have to tell Satan to take a hike. You just got to do it. There's a psalm, I can't remember its number now, but the psalmist is in a good spirit. He's not always in good spirits, but this psalmist is. and he says, what am I going to do to thank God for all that he has given me? He says, well, I'm going to take the cup of his salvation and I'm going to drink it. Satan has some of you convinced that, well, you shouldn't drink that cup every day because you don't deserve it. Well, of course you don't deserve it. You start thinking you deserve it. You've got bigger problems. You don't deserve a bit of it. When you look in the mirror and you go, how could God love me? Well, of course. You should look in my mirror. If you think your mirror is bad, you should check mine out we can compare mirrors and I'm pretty sure I'll come up on the bottom the top however you want to compare that God didn't love you because you were going to be some great one as I read in the scriptures God chose the base things 1 Corinthians and the things that are not if you hear this morning in Christ it's probably because you were a base thing and still are in yourself because you were a thing that was nothing, and still are, in yourself. I saw a YouTube title, I get a lot of YouTube titles, They're, they always stir me up, and then I get so stirred up I forget to watch YouTube. Um, but this was two celebrity preachers are going to talk about sanctification, I have to admit, the, the first thing I thought was, look, this is not a hard topic, so it says they were going to throw it around or struggle with it or something I'm like this is not a hard concept so if you get a whole bunch of Bible blah 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 I'm like this is really easy you put sin to death and you put on righteousness sanctification is not a hard concept in the Bible if it wasn't for Romans 7 there wouldn't be any debate about it I and mean, even Romans 7 isn't really debatable but people debate it the deity of Christ isn't debatable people will debate it <clears throat> debate doesn't mean that there's confusion Or that there's multiple sides. It just means some people are confused about it. Sanctification, to understand it, is easy. You just put sin to death. You take a gun out and you shoot it. You don't talk to it. You don't negotiate with it. You don't try to transform it. You shoot it. You kill it. That thought, shoot it. That action, you're not going to do it. Shoot it. Bite that lip. Turn away that eye. And then you put on righteousness. That's... That's a challenge, but it's not hard to understand, is it? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, goodness, meekness, long-suffering. Are those hard to understand, really? Meekness, yeah, you've got to figure that out. What is meekness? But <clears throat> you kind of get the idea. I'm not going to go around and be an aggressive person. That's not meekness. I'm not going to go out and charge into the battle, perhaps, of the bloodbath of American politics that's probably not a good idea and it probably end up not being so meek be careful what you get into it may change you into something you don't want to be you see sanctification is just not that hard to understand it's just hard to do and then the snake oil salesmen come here's a shortcut to you being holy who wouldn't buy that book I've, I've bought them I've read them Sanctification, snake oil, all over the place out there. Switching price tags. God wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy. Yeah, it's called the new heavens and the new earth, folks. Is that hard to figure out? Now, because they got snake oil, they got a lot of people out there deceived, and we need to help them get undeceived. But they're not deceived because the issues are complicated. They're deceived because they don't read their Bibles. If they would read their Bibles, they would go, oh, Paul solves this sanctification thing in like three verses in Colossians, maybe four. He throws in some redemptive historical stuff in the middle of it. It's like you're a new man in Christ because you're part of the last days, a new era of humanity. Ephesians 2, a new humanity has been created. Those are last days, eschatological issues. The Christian life is not that difficult to understand. There might be perplexed about a few doctrines here and there. Some of us had to struggle with sovereign grace. yeah, that, that's more of a paradigm shift of heart than it is really of head. The Bible's really simple and clear on it. It's just believe in it, embracing it and be willing to take it to the bank. That's another story. What we need, we need clarity. We need some details. You know, Some of you fathers, if you're like me, I'm kind of boring. So if you're like, what do I do with my daughter? There's a book on 52 things to do with your daughters. Some of you know right how to do it. You were wired to do it. So you think, man, this is easy. What's wrong with you, Steve? I was wired to talk about the last days. <laughs> what, what can I say? Does it work with my daughter at dinner? I can promise you. I've tried, I think. So some of us need the 52 ideas. For those of you who have great ideas, tell them to us. But don't come to me, because i have to give you a book. But to do it, to get the grit to do it, to get the grit to put sin to death every time, to put away the temptation when Satan comes and like Jesus promises you the world, or at least some little part of it, if you'll just go along with his... Diminishing of sin. Sin's not that bad. You know how Satan works? Sin isn't that bad. What do you mean? Just, it's just a little sin. After you do it, what's on the other This is a big sin. You'll never be forgiven. That's how it works. And so being holiness and pursuing it in your life personally means, okay, clarity on what I've got to be, but that's not that hard. Doing it's the hard part. And I promise you, Spirit of God take these last days and the reality of that, put that in your heart and the glory of it, you'll be hootenanny. You'll be hollering and you'll have the juice it takes to live the Christian life and that's the point of it. The last days, you know how the book of Revelation opens up with the last days because it's talking about the last days what does it open up with a vision of the majestic glory of Jesus Christ that's what God starts out with so that you can face these last days and the massive warfare between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness that you are part of whether you like it or not You don't get to go AWOL. You fight or you fail. And what you need in your heart, Jesus gives us. We need a vision of the risen, glorified Christ. And the era that he has inaugurated. You need that. Before the Apostle Paul gives the details of holiness, what's the first thing he says? You know, if you've died with Christ, don't go off into misconceptions of a bunch of false religious activity. But he says, if you're risen with Christ, which is the power of your new life, because Christ has risen in the last days, He's raised, He's at the right hand of God. You're seated with Him, Ephesians chapter two. See, all of this is last day stuff. If you're risen with Christ, what are you supposed to do? Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. That is a quote from that psalm. That is eschatology. And you are to live your life with the recognition that you are united with him in heaven. There's 150 pounds of DNA in heaven and that changed history forever. The last days. The whole of discipleship is based on this. The foundation that we can live under God, that we have new life in Christ. That we don't live by the oldness of the letter, but by the newness of the Spirit, that we have the laws of God being written on our heart by the Holy Spirit. It's called New Covenant. And I personally don't subscribe so much to New Covenant theology as I do to New Covenant eschatology, and I'm telling you why. Starting last week. The power of the gospel, the reign of God, the reign of righteousness, the reign of grace. That is the era you live in today. Rejoice in it, have confidence in it, and get busy serving God in it. And tell Satan to take a hike and drink the cup of the salvation that God has accomplished in these last days. These last days have a beginning. They have begun. We are in it. These last days are described. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. If someone says, well, Steve, you know, you're telling me about the visions and the dreams you had. I'm like, yep, here it is right here. I have had them. They are good, they are wholesome, as long as they take you to the Bible. Every one of my dreams, every one of my visions took me to the Word of God. People dismiss these things, have never had them, and so they take some, you know, weirdo, false prophet claiming to have all this stuff, and they make him the example. Well, no one certainly wants to be those things. But I'm not throwing the baby out with the bath of water. The church, every one of us, we have to live by the Holy Spirit. Now, whether you have these or not, doesn't mean you are or aren't a Christian. They're not the necessary evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. But they can be a real expression of it. Remember, again, I probably told you we had one brother. He was a deacon. He was a good brother. He was dispensational. So in the end, he couldn't hang with us. But, <clears throat> and that was his reason. But I want to tell you what, he... He would have dreams and visions about this church and he didn't even know he was having them. He'd come and say, you know, Steve, I had this vision about you last night. And it was like, true. I'm like, oh, gosh. One of them was really helpful. One of them was really like, oh. Stabbing the heart. But he didn't even know that's what was going on. He'd probably deny the gifts of the Spirit if you asked him. But he was functioning them. All throughout the New Testament, you can see these things happening. Agabus prophesied, Philip's daughters prophesied, Ananias had a vision. He was just some, old, some regular guy. And God comes to him as if, as if this regularly happened and said, Ananias, you know, Paul's going to come and you need to do this, this, and this. And Ananias is like, wait a minute, this guy kills people who, followed you, who follow you. What's going on? And, and you don't get the feeling that Ananias was like, ah, a vision, what is this? just a regular person a regular saint in the lord whom god is going to use you never hear from him again and he was the instrument god chose to get paul baptized and on the way to fulfilling his purposes they're going to prophesy there's going to be a work of the holy spirit you see, if the church is just operating, if you are just operating, if we as a body are just operating the power of our own intellect, then we got big problems. What did Jesus say about that in Revelation chapter 2? He said, if you guys are just going to operate out of the power of intellect, you've, you know, you've determined that there are people who are, you know, they say they're apostles, but they are not, and you've, you've discerned that. Great but you've left your first love. You go walking around in the power of intellect and you will be dry as a bone. You will be a candlestick with no fire on it. We need the Holy Spirit. Every day, every minute, every moment in our lives. You see, in the, probably the more, Simple view of things is called being born again. It's thrown around so much and taken so lightly and assumed not to be a powerful thing because apparently you can be born again and still be a carnal Christian. That just doesn't work in the Bible. To be born of God, to have the power of God to. For Jesus, as he told it in John 13 and 14, I and my Father will come and take up our abode in you by this Holy Spirit. This is the power of the last days. The fullness of times. We have to live by the Holy Spirit. As a church, we have to live by the Holy Spirit. We just can't do things on our own. We just can't do things about this and that. And someone says, you know, you need some demographics. Well, maybe demographics will help, but if that's the power of what you're doing, Forget about it, as they say in New Jersey. We need the Holy Spirit. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And This is one of those things, in the last days God includes everybody. God is DEI. He is absolutely DEI. He was the first person there for DEI. He's still DEI. He's still diversity, he's still equality, and he's still about inclusion. Whether you're young or you're old, there's old men, there's young men. Whether you're male or female, there's sons, there's daughters. Whether you're bond or free, no matter what your social status is, no matter how much money is or isn't in your bank accounts, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. Now, if you've got a lot of money, you can go down to a store and you can buy a lot of stuff, but there's one thing you could never buy, not in all eternity, and that is the Holy Spirit. The most precious treasure of the universe. God's own spirit indwelling you. And some of you, you look in the mirror and you go, Well, I'm not worthy. Well, again, of course you're not. You should write on the mirror, Of course I'm unworthy. Of course I say stupid things. Of course I argue with my husband and, or my wife. I shouldn't, but I do. Of course all these. I mean, just write them up there. You can write them with lipstick or I don't know what guys would use, but put it right on your mirror. Of course. Of course. But that's not how God sees you. God says, I'm taking you to eternity with me. Have you thought about that? God sent his son because God said, I will not spend the rest of eternity without you. Write that on your mirror, too. God has given you his Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of adoption. You are a child of the living God. He loves you with an everlasting love. He will one day give you everything that he is. He will give you a whole God, a whole Father. The last days are here. Be the children of God. Let us as individuals live and walk by the Spirit. And when we fail, and we will. As a matter of fact, 1 John says, if you think you've come to a place where you're not going to fail, you're in big trouble. If we say that we haven't sinned, we're liars. But if any sin We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. We must have the Spirit of God. We must serve the living God out of the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. His grace is fruit. His guidance. His love. His joy is peace. So the last days begin with the greatest gift from God a human being could ever have. The greatest thing that God could ever give you is not a big yacht. It's not a BMW. By the way, I'd rather have another car than BMW myself, but God gives you Himself. God gives you Himself. Doesn't matter how lowly you are, according to this world, doesn't matter how high you are. He gives you himself, your child of God, and you're also a servant. We're all bond servants of Jesus Christ. So those of you who think you were, used to be free Americans living in a democracy, hate to tell you're in the kingdom of God where you're a bond servant now. No democracy. Just the reign of King Jesus in your life. The presence of the Spirit in the ordinary lives, insignificant lives, lives that the world will never write biographies about, lives that the, lo- the world will never acknowledge, lives which the world will even despise and diminish. You ladies, do not ever listen to feminism. It's absurd and ridiculous. I think most of you know it, but it's still, just don't listen to it. It's, it's the world's view of womanhood, and it is vain and empty. So the last days have a beginning, we're in it, you're in it, but do the last days have an end, that becomes the question. Do the last days have an end? Well if the last days have an end, what are its indicators, how would we know it, what is this end? Some of you have a sneaking suspicion, well you got it on that little column with the second coming, well didn't have any place else to put it, didn't have time to revamp my little slides here for it, but. You kind of know that's where it's going to end up. But let's be sure that's where it's supposed to end up. You see, the prophet Joel goes on. There's this Holy Spirit given that inaugurates the last days, that initiates the fullness of time. Fullness of time, Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman. Same era, different description. And Joel just switches. It's like, wait a minute, Joel, you're talking about the Holy Spirit. Next thing you know, you're talking about this bizarre stuff. What's, what gives? Well, Peter quotes from Joel some more. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and really should be columns of smoke. The earth below, things happening on the earth below, there's blood, fire, and smoke. What is that? Where would you get a picture of that in your mind? What would that be a picture of? Would that not be the landscape of a massive battle where there's dead bodies, fire and smoke coming up from it? And that's on the earth. It's the common common language of apocalyptic judgment. You find it in Isaiah. You find it in Joel multiple times. It's the language of Jesus' second coming, Matthew twenty four. It's the language of the book of Revelation. Joel is giving expression to the sovereign intervention of God in human affairs on the earth below. It's a scenery of a great battle of death and destruction and fires and smoke and columns of smoke going up. And yes, this is what God does. So everybody thinks that they've got a trick question. Well, if God is, you know, if God is good, then how come there's a bad world? We're supposed to be tricked by that, right? But you just say, you go home and look in your mirror. Read you know, God's 1,000 demands in the Gospels and epistles and then look in the mirror and then you're going to figure out why. Bad things happen to good people. There are no good people. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. World War I and World War II weren't just unfortunate events. They were the wrath of God on humanity for its pride and arrogance and sin. Just read the Old Testament prophets who listed out God is sovereign over the affairs of men. I declare this. The Lord is declaring he's going to do this. And throughout human history, God has brought these things on the world. Sometimes just as a judgment for sin. Sometimes to achieve his purposes. Isaiah 10, Ho, Assyrian, the rod of my anger. God was angry at Israel for their repudiation of him. They were trading God in for stuff and things and false inventions of their own mind, falling down and worshiping idols instead of the living God who made heaven and earth. And God for centuries told them to stop, and they wouldn't, and finally he said, I'm going to bring the Assyrian on the land, O Israel, and I'm going to carry you away and scatter you among the nations. 725 BC. Ho the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. God is in charge of history. Let the earth tremble. But it's not just things below. I will show wonders in the heavens above, God says. The sun's going to be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Strange language, but it's apocalyptic language. It's language that's supposed to give an impression. You don't so much detail it out. Well, how does he do that? Maybe there's some physics to it. I don't know, but God has the way of suspending the physics of his universe to get things done. And if people object to that, tough luck for them. God is not beholding... human beings or the supposed laws of his universe he made them he can suspend them at will the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood and just think about that what if you went outside and all of a sudden you know the sun in midday is just darkened and that's it and the moon's just blood blood red and that's how it goes and that's how it stays you know one thing if it's an eclipse for five minutes but that's how it stays what happens to the earth How long before all the crops die? How long before uh, everybody's killing their neighbor over some food? How long before the whole world is in utter chaos and destruction? God not only interferes in the things of human beings where they destroy themselves with their own human instruments, God deals with things that are beyond the domain of human capability and existence. God controls the heavens. And you don't get to do anything about it. You see, the prophecy of Joel is in the midst of what? This great host of locusts that were coming just eating up the whole land. You can't even control locusts today. You get a swarm of locusts, and there's just no technology that's going to solve that. You're just going to sit back and watch the crops get eaten. You see, God's in charge of a lot of things that are way beyond human technology and human pride and human logic. When God starts to turn his anger and his wrath on a person or a nation he has tools in his tool chest that are beyond anything we can imagine and anything we can cope with. The sun shall be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and the magnificent day. There have been numerous days of judgment in history where God intervenes in human affairs. There's been the flood, the greatest one, where only eight people escaped. And there was hundreds of millions of people on earth at that time. Egypt got crushed. It was the world empire at that time. It was the America of the world, and it got crushed destroyed by God Israel was led captive to Assyria Judah was led captive to Babylon ancient empires were destroyed global wars have occurred these have all been things that are called the day of the Lord but that's not what Joel is talking about here he's talking about a day beyond any other day the world has ever seen or known or will know It is the final day of judgment. And that's why you see this lofty terminology. The great, the magnificent day. The awesome day. The notable day. There have been many instances of God's judgment. This is the final one and this is the great one. And this is the one every human being will face. And our time's up so we'll have to see how Joel handles this next week Heavenly Father we come before your throne and this morning we're just so glad we live in the days, the last days the days of grace the day when Jesus is your right hand the day when gospel is proclaimed to all nations when all we have to do is repent and believe and you'll give us the greatest gift you could ever give a person, this is a gift from God, it's not houses, it's not lands, it's your own Holy Spirit into our hearts. And by that incredible transformation of being born of you, we become forever a child of God. Lord, just pray that you would seal all our hearts and all of our minds with that. Today, this week, and forever. Lord, when we look into our mirrors as we so often do and criticize ourselves and evaluate ourselves, we'll etch into it with a diamond that we're born of God, that we're saved by the blood of the Lamb, and that we're accepted in the beloved, and that you love us from all eternity to all eternity. You've told us that by giving your spirit to us. Lord, may each one of us. Each one of us here, take that to heart more and more. As a body of believers together, we'll take it to heart more and more. As individuals, we'll be mindful to put our sin to death, to do what it takes. And Lord, to make the great work of our lives to put on righteousness and everything. Lord, in our relationships, Lord, we'll put on righteousness and be before your throne. It will be righteousness that's in your sight, not ours or others. Seek your recognition, not that of others. Lord, may we have the joy of your Holy Spirit and just the recognition of, that we're a child of God and the fullness and richness of it. Lord, give us clarity, intellectual clarity about the last days, but Lord, fill us with the spirit of those last days. The most important thing, Lord, as we regard one another, we will regard one each other as we regard ourselves. When we start the criticism, we'll go, "Oops, this is a child of God, born of God, beloved of God, forgiven by God." Lord, we'll bite our tongue and stop the gossip and stop the criticism, and Lord, we'll look at one another with renewed eyes. That we are brethren and that's deep and rich and forever. It's not just a term thrown around in religious circles. It's a real thing. And we will love one another and we will regard one another and we will encourage one another and we will, Lord, prefer one another in love, prefer one another in, in honor. We will try to edify one another, encourage each other to be more and more part of the last days of gospel proclamation to the nations. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You died for our sin and you rose for our justification and you have taken care of everything in our life. Heavenly Father, thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world. And Lord, every one of us, drink the cup of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.